money is always about more than the dollars and cents. No matter how nice it might be to objectively measure the value of a thing or calculate the salary of a new hire or assess the return on a particular investment, there is always something else going on, something that defies the ability to measure it with pure math. There are the cultural norms we carry, the familial attitudes that are passed on to us, the limiting beliefs we've picked up along the way. There is always so much more to consider about money than the dollars and cents. I'm Tara McMullen, and you're listening to What Works, the show that takes a deep dive into what's really working to run and grow a small business today. From marketing to management to operations to product development to, yes, money. This month, We have a series of episodes exploring money and our changing relationships to it. This is a series we've been planning since late last year, but as the current global health crisis has blossomed into a global economic crisis, these questions about money and our relationship to it, especially as small business owners, feel more relevant every single day. Over the course of this month, you'll hear from What Works regular Marie Poulin about how a surprise discovery led her to upending her business model while finding a whole new sense of ease when it came to making money. You'll also hear from jewelry designer Tiffany Whips, who has seen firsthand the wild swings in value that a fickle market can create. And you'll hear from Jennifer Patterson, who runs a large portion of her herbalism and breathwork business on a sliding scale. Plus, you'll hear What Works Network members share how their relationship to money has evolved over time, too. All throughout this series, we're asking you to examine the assumptions and beliefs that you hold about money. Some of them might be long held, perhaps stemming from how your parents handled money or a story you heard a long time ago. Others might be more cultural. Maybe you've picked up some beliefs about money that come from how the news is reported or which business heroes are celebrated. Others might come from your very own market. I hear tall tales about money repeated as fact in my own industry all the time. But today, I wanted to start close to home. My own relationship to money has changed so much over the time I've been a business owner. So the first half of this episode is my own reflections on the most important money lesson I've learned in the last five years and the specific ways it's played out in my business over that time. The second half of the episode is a conversation with my husband and business partner, Sean, about how his relationship to money is changing now that he's a business owner too. Now, as I put this episode together, I realize that the whole of it is really a conversation about potential and possibility. So many of the money beliefs and assumptions that have shifted for me over the years were ones that were deeply rooted in self-imposed limitations. Whether it was how much I could expect to earn, how many people I might expect to employ, how much I could charge for a service, or how much more I might leave space for in my life, these beliefs held me back. In this episode, yes, we'll dig into how mindset and relationship impacts what we think about money and how those things change over time, but we'll also get into the specific ripple effects that those mindset shifts bring about. It's not all about adding zeros to your bank balance. It's about seeing potential and possibility everywhere and the nuts and bolts of building a business with real vision behind it. But before we get into the meat of today's episode, I just want to remind you that we're taking this money conversation even further during our Money and the New Economy online gathering, June 10th through 12th. Join me, the What Works Network, and speakers like Jaquette Timmons, Kate Strathman, Sarah Von Bargan, Nicole Lewis-Kieber, Erica Corday, and more for a live interactive conversation about how our relationship to money is changing. To learn more and grab your ticket, go to explorewhatworks.com slash money. And now, the single most important lesson I've learned about money in the last five years. In the 11 and a half years that I've been in business, I have learned so much about money and my relationship to money has changed so much. But kind of reflecting back on the last decade, there is one money lesson that has really been the catalyst for a lot of change and a lot of growth in my relationship to money and how I think about money differently today than I did even three or four years ago, let alone when I was first getting started with my business. And that number one money lesson is that the money the business makes is not my money. Let me say that again. The money the business makes is not my money. 
Now, maybe that's obvious to you, and maybe that's the sort of assumption or the framework that you've been working with the entire time you were in business, and that's awesome if that's the case. But for me, that has not always been the case. Learning that the money my business makes is not my money, it's not my personal income, it's not mine to spend however I see fit, has really been key to being able to approach my business in a much more objective, strategic way over the last five years or so. And this lesson really has come part and parcel with leaning into the fact that my business is not me either. My business is separate, something I've created. My business is not the essence of me. It's a product of me. So I started learning this lesson probably way too late in the course of my business, but it was really when I had to get clearer on the money that my business was making and how I was using that money. And it was really when um, you know I started to go from revenue that looked like a healthy salary to revenue that was at least a few times what a healthy salary would be. And I I found myself in this position of being able to generate more revenue than I had ever anticipated my business generating and certainly more money than I personally thought that I would ever make. But I found all of this money Going into my personal bank account, because when I started my business, I was not really thinking about starting a business. I was thinking about paying myself. I was thinking about, you know, being self-employed, about of kind of creating work for myself so that I could get paid. And so, you know, even though I knew you were supposed to or I learned this at some point, you were supposed to split your business finances from your personal finances. I kind of never did. And not kind of, I really didn't. It was just all of my business, business, or it was all of my business money was in my personal bank account. And I paid contractors, I paid software, I paid all of the things I needed to pay through that personal bank account. So um, when my revenue took a serious jump, I finally built up the nerve to contact uh, the people that would become my book bookkeepers and say, all right, I am in this position. I feel a ton of shame. I know I shouldn't be here. I know I should have done this years and years ago, but what do I do now? And they were wonderful. They really walked me through the process of splitting everything up. And yes, it took time. And yes, uh, it was an investment of energy, but um, it very quickly started to show me what the possibilities were and how I could um, make better decisions and have a better understanding of what was actually going on in my business as I started to split things up. And so that process, it probably really, in, in hindsight, only took a couple of months to get everything split up. And then I had a business bank account and I had a personal bank account and the money could flow back and forth very easily if, if necessary and as needed. But they were separate. And so I could start to see things separately. A few years later, I took another step in the direction of really learning the lesson that the money the business makes is not the the money that I make, which is that I started to pay myself a salary. Um, So we took uh, the S-Corp election which if you're in the United States, uh, a very common way to set up a small business is legally as an LLC and then to be taxed, to elect to be taxed as uh, what's called an S-corp. And that allows you to start paying yourself a salary. So I'm actually the employee of my business and I earn a paycheck with my other team members, which I'll get into in a minute. Uh, I earn a paycheck with them. So every couple of weeks, we run payroll, and I get paid as an employee. I get a W-2 at the end of the year. I have a job. Um, and so I'll get into kind of the repercussions of that and how, I, I, how that changed things for me in a little bit. But that was the next step. The step after that, which happened almost concurrently, was that I also started hiring people as employees. I started moving my contractors from contract relationships into employee relationships. And the full-time person, I started paying on salary as well. And so that was a whole nother level of really seeing my business finances as separate 
from my personal finances. So then the last step in this journey, at least so far in uh, seeing the money that the business makes as different from my own money, was shifting into a business model where the value proposition isn't based on what I create. It's not based on the service that I can provide or the information that I have or the digital products that I can create. Um, sure, you know, my hand is all over what we do on a day-to-day basis on the value that we're providing to our clients and our members, but I am not nearly as tied to the product as I used to be. And so that really helped me to start to see the business model as separate from what I could create as well, which then made it easier to see the money that the business makes as separate from my money. Now, as I mentioned, this might be a lesson that you've already learned, and I I hope you keep listening because I have a lot to say on the topic, and uh, there's a lot uh, that this lesson has then led me to learn, which I'm going to get into in just a minute. Or this might be a lesson that you didn't need to learn because maybe this is the mindset that you started your business with. But I didn't. And there's a really good reason for that. And that was that I didn't really have any business owner or entrepreneurial role models in my life to show me that that was a thing, (laughs) that that was a possibility for me. I didn't have any role models of the potential to create something that was separate from me, from my work, from my labor. Now, that's not to say that I didn't know someone who owned a business. I grew up with a self-employed mother. My mom ran a sewing business for the vast majority of the first 20 years of my life. And that was how she put food on the table. It was how she put a roof over our head. And in her business, the money she made was her money. That was the money that put a roof over our head and put food on the table. There was no separation between the business and her work, between the business's money and her money. And that's really normal. And, and, you know, in some ways, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's, that's self-employment. And there is a limit, I think, in most, most industries, most markets, to what you can earn and what you can create through self-employment. And we certainly experienced that growing up. You know, it was she had a real limit on her time. There's only so many hems she could do in the day. She could only take in so many pants or dresses in a day. And so even though she was often incredibly busy and charging what was good rates for the work that she was doing based on the rest of the market, We didn't have much uh, and we didn't have anything left over at the end of the month. And so I grew up with that being the only model I knew. And of course, you know, I knew I knew I wanted to earn more than that. I hoped I could earn more than that. But at the same time, the model, the framework of self-employment, of getting paid for my work and my labor on my own terms, that was the model that I knew and that was the model that I was replicating. So when I started my business, I assumed that the money I earned was my money. There was no uh, vision or really even an an idea of having a business that was separate from me. And so in that process, then all of the work I did was a reflection of my service or the information products I could create. And so all of the money still felt like a product of what I did, what I knew or what I created. It was a product of my time and my energy. And when that is the case, it's harder, not impossible, We'll get into that later, but it's harder to see the money as separate from uh, your personal finances, harder to see the, the money the business makes as separate from your own money. So let's get into some of the ripple effects of learning this big money lesson, of learning that the money that my business makes is not my money. So this really starts at the very first stage of the journey, which was splitting my personal finances from my business finances. And as soon as I did that, as soon as Corey and Parker started running the reports and showing me, you know, on a monthly basis, all right, here's what you're earning, here's what you're spending, here's the breakdown of it all, 
uh, immediately I had a better understanding of what I was spending to make money. And therefore, then I could make better investments in the future of the business. And yes, there's part of this lesson that that is sort of that old cliche of you got to spend money to make money. Um, but I think it's it's bigger than that. When I knew what I was spending and what I could spend in my business just because I had better information, I could make better choices about what I was spending on. I could prioritize certain results over other results or certain investments over other investments. And I felt just a lot more in control about the ins and outs, the inflow and outflow of money in my business um, just from splitting things up. The money situation didn't actually change, right? I just knew what the money situation was because I had split those things up. And I was starting to see, starting to have the inklings of understanding that my business's money was not my money. And further with this, I felt more free to spend money because I could see that the money I was spending was not mine. I was no longer taking the money out of my own bank account. I was taking it out of the business's bank account. Now, it took longer <laughs> to make the shift to not just thinking of everything that was left over in there as my own, but even in that process, just seeing the business bank account, having the balance there and knowing that I was spending against that balance versus the balance in my personal checking account was huge. And again, that might seem really obvious and straightforward, but the experience of it to me was very, very profound. So the next piece then was starting to pay myself a salary. And this was this was big, not just because it was a steady paycheck and not just because, you know, I knew how much I was guaranteeing myself every month. Um, it was also it also added a layer of accountability to my work that I had not really experienced to that point. Um, in the past, sort of the natural ups and downs of the business and the natural ups and downs of just how money came in allowed me to feel a probably like an unhelpful sense of flexibility. Like, oh, it's not a big deal if this month is down or it's not a big deal if this month, uh, you know, if I if I put this off a month because it, the money will come in eventually. I'll make the sales eventually. That might still have been true. Um, and there are certainly times today when I still think through like, all right, doesn't have to be this month. We've got enough to get by. We'll be okay. But when I started to pay myself on that every two week basis or twice a month basis, I started to look at the revenue model of the business uh, in a more steady way as well. And I started to look at my own contribution to that in a more steady way. So I, I was finding myself feeling a new level of personal accountability of the work that I put into the business, the ideas that I put into the business, and just the way that we managed it on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. And within all of that as well, um, and sort of kind of maybe even as the umbrella over it all, I realized I had a job. It wasn't just that I was in control of the money that I was making. It wasn't just that I owned a business. I now had a job. You know, that kind of comes with having a paycheck is that you have a job. And so I started to hold myself accountable to the expectations of what having a job would look like. And so that meant, you know, maybe a more steady schedule, uh, more regular hours, uh, less random afternoons taken off. Not that there's anything wrong with a random afternoon taken off, but we can overdo it too if if that's not part of the plan. And so realizing that I had a job and that I was accountable to myself as boss was really, really huge. The next step um, was starting to pay others a salary as well. And so not only was I accountable to myself for my steady paycheck, I was accountable to myself for their steady paycheck. And that meant that I had a new level of accountability, a new level of responsibility. And I know that it's one that people really fear. But for me, for as much um, fear and sometimes stress and anxiety that can come with that, there has been a real benefit and a real kind of joy in finding that level of personal accountability and that level of, of discipline that I want to have on behalf 
of the people who work for me. Um, and so, you know, that might not be so much a money lesson, but it's certainly been a ripple effect of this core money lesson of learning that my business's money is not my money. And then the final step in this journey and, and sort of the final set of ripple effects is really being able to change our business model. Um, when I was still very much in the mindset of the business's money being my money, it was very much based on what I could create, on what I knew, what my skills were, what services I could provide. And now... Um, now that our business model has shifted to something that we as a company have created, um, something that we as a company deliver, um, I really look at my role in that much more objectively. And I look at our pricing structure so much more objectively. And so now today, our pricing structure is really a function of value and the sustainability of the business. And it has nothing to do with my self-worth or how much I value my own work. I can say, all right, this is my job as the leader, as the CEO, as the boss, as the facilitator. These are my jobs. This is my job description. These are my expectations. And this is what I'm getting paid for that work. And I can look at that very, very objectively. On the other hand, I can say, this is what we've built. This is the value proposition that we have. These are the people that we work with. And this is what we need to price this to make uh, the product make sense and to make our business make sense. And so it is very much now, you know, a real function of math. <laughs> you know, we price things according to math, not about how I feel about a particular product or even about how our customers feel. I mean, that's part of it. Sure, that's a, probably a discussion for a different day. Um, but the heart of our pricing strategy is much more objective today than it ever has been in the history of our business. So, as you know, What Works is only one of the two businesses that I run, but it has been the business that I've been running, obviously, the longest. It's been 11 and a half years now <laughs> that I've been in business for myself and that this business has existed in one iteration or another. But last August, uh, my husband and I started a new business called Yellow House Media. It's a, a full-service podcast production agency and consultancy. And in starting that new business, there were so many money things that I wanted to do differently <laughs> the second time around and that I was so excited to be able to do differently. But all of them, I think, <laughs> to a one, start with this kind of foundational money lesson that I've learned of realizing that the business's money is not my money, or in this case, the business's money is not our money. So let's get into how that's actually translated into how we've set the business up. So first off, the business's money has been split from our personal finances since day one. Along with that, we filed our uh, LLC incorporation and then filed our S-corp election right away. We knew this is how we want to set this business up. We want to have uh, Sean making a steady paycheck from this business as soon as that is is viable. And so within a couple of months, it was viable. He, we put him on payroll. Boom. Done. It's been awesome. So Sean does earn a steady paycheck from that business. I don't take anything out of the business yet. Um, I may go on payroll at some point, or we may just handle that through profit distribution. And then for now, our goal is just to kind of accumulate a cushion of profit for future investment in the business. So we take very little profit distribution from the business right now. It's there to make sure that we can bring people on board and train people, um, that we don't have to feel like the people that we hire have to be producing from day one in order for us to be able to afford them. The, the next thing that is really different in the way that we've set this business up is that even though the business model is very, very, very different from uh, the way we run what works, we were still able to really price our service very objectively. So even though the, the revenue that we earn and the services that we offer are based off of our labor, 
our ideas, our framework, um, that it is a hands-on service, we were still able to really step back and say, what is this service worth? And how does it function within the business? And what is the value of this service to our clients? And use that as the basis for how we price what we do. So that's how we came up with our initial price point. And now nine months in, we feel really good about that price point. It's a solid yes for our clientele, and it's covering not only our salary, uh, but team members' um, paychecks as well, and leaving profit for us at the end of the day too. Speaking of which, we've been able to budget for help since the very beginning, uh, knowing that we wanted to hire people, knowing that we would need to hire people to run the business the way we wanted to run it. That's been built into our pricing and it's been built into how we think about how the business runs from day one. So our editor, our production assistant, and our operations consultant are all paid for really easily um, from the number of clients that we have and from the the monthly recurring revenue um, that we bring in through those service agreements. And so then what that means is that now that we're expanding capacity, um, we're actually super confident that we can make additional hires based on our financial model. We know that we can hire people now, and we know that as we bring in more clients, those hires will be more than paid for. We know that expanding the capacity of the business is actually going to make our lives more flexible, make our lives easier instead of adding to our workload and really hamstringing us personally. Now, you're going to hear in the conversations that I have with other business owners this month uh, that I've asked each of them what money they are intentionally leaving on the table. You know, I think that it's really easy uh, to go chasing every revenue stream that you can conceive of. And I see this happen all the time, uh, that people have an idea or they see a trend in the market and they're like, oh, I could do that too and kind of add that in. And I mean, full disclosure, been there, done that. Uh, but now today, uh, my business is really based on the money that I'm leaving on the table, the things that I am not going to sell uh, because they're not in line with our business model. They're not in line with our value proposition. They're not in line with our brand or how uh, the relationship that we want to have with our customers. So I really wanted to share my answer to that question as well. So there are a few things that I could easily sell at what works that I either haven't or I just haven't put any kind of gusto behind them. Like maybe an opportunity comes along and I might take it, but it's not something that we actively sell. So the first and best example of this is business coaching. I still get inquiries on, if not a weekly basis, a very, very regular basis. Hey, Tara, do you still do coaching? Hey, Tara, can I work with you one-on-one? -on -one? And the answer is no. It's not that I haven't taken on business coaching clients every so often. I do, and I may still in the future. You know, this answer could change at any point in time. But for now, it's not in line with our plans. It's not in line with our business model. And it's not in line with how I want to spend my time in the business and what I get paid for in the business. So business coaching is not something that we offer. And it's not something that I do uh, to generate revenue. Another thing that we've been asked to do in the past that we may do in the future, but isn't currently in line with our plans or business model and is definitely a place where we're leaving money on the table is community strategy or community consulting. Um, so there, are, you know, we we get inquiries from people on a regular basis as well about helping them build out the structure of their community, doing the tech behind their community, doing community management with them or for them. Um, those inquiries are really interesting to me, but for now, I haven't seen a really good kind of product market fit there. I think there's an opportunity, um, and it's kind of an ongoing discussion that we have inside uh, of the business around how we could do it, what it would look like, who we'd want to work with, how we'd have to price it to make it make sense. Um, but for now, it's not something that we offer, and it's and it is for sure, money that we're leaving on the table intentionally. And then the last thing is courses. We get asked on a regular basis what courses we have for marketing or product development or pricing or management or mindset, whatever. Um, and we do have some of those courses still on Creative Live. You can buy still any course that I taught over there. 
you can buy a standalone at Creative Live, but it's not something that we sell today. This might be something that's changing uh, or might need to change. Um, however, for now, it's not something that we offer and it's not something that we really plan to offer. If we incorporate a course or program component into our business model, it will not be a it will not be a very passive model. It'll be something that encourages collaboration, that it, it will be something that encourages learning together in community. Um, so we're not really interested in sort of that standalone DIY two thousand uh, dollar price point online course model. Uh, we could do it. We've done it in the past. Uh, but it's not part of our plan now. And it's definitely a way in which we are, quote, leaving money on the table. All right, before we wrap up here, I want to come back to one final aspect of learning that my business's money is not my money. And that is not using money, either the money that I earn or the money that I spend as a measure of my credibility, my authority, my self-worth, or my self-love even. Um, and you're going to hear more about this particular part of the conversation, this particular idea in my interview with Jennifer Patterson later this month. But I wanted to bring it up now so that you could start thinking about it and sort of start preparing yourself for that piece um, as the conversation around money unfolds this month. So we've really been taught um, either explicitly or implicitly that we're supposed to be charging what we're worth. And that when you charge what you're worth, that's how you know you take yourself seriously. It's how you know how much you value your own work and even kind of as a measure of your own self-worth. But let me tell you, that's bullshit. Uh, there is no such thing as charging what you're worth. That is a, a feel-good mantra that really means nothing when it comes to business. And this, this understanding to me really is a ripple effect as well of this idea that the money my business makes is not my money. Because the more I started to see money and the amount that I was earning or the amount I wasn't earning as a function of the business, it was no longer about me. There is nothing about how I price my products or services today that is about me. It's not about me. It's about my clients. It's about my customers, our members. It's about the results that they get, the uh, hole that we can fill for them, the value that we provide. And our pricing is a function of those things as well as a function of the actual expenses of running our business, what it takes to be able to deliver those things. But it has nothing to do with my own self-worth, and it has nothing to do with my credibility or what people think of me or you know, how much I love myself or value my own work. So pricing is subjective. And I know that I've talked a lot about it uh, as objective today. And there's a huge piece of it that can be looked at objectively. Um, price is subjective. It does tell a story, but it doesn't have to tell the story of our self-worth. And it doesn't tell the story of my self-worth. The price I charge doesn't have to have anything to do with what I think of myself or the value of my work. Now, on the flip side of this, I think we also see this on the spending side as well. Spending can be an investment in your business. It can also be an investment in you. But how much you spend, what you're willing to spend on yourself, doesn't have anything to do with what you think of yourself or your capacity for growth. And this, this is a, <laughs> this is a trick that marketers will use, that salespeople will use against us. They will tell us that if we're not willing to spend X amount of dollars, 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, 75,000, $100,000, that then we don't believe in ourselves, that we don't have a, a strong sense of self-worth. And that is also bullshit, of course. So spending can be and is often an investment in your business and an investment of, in you. But what you spend with the money your business generates is not a measure 
of your self-worth. Now, my financial results have swung around wildly over the last 10 years. My pricing has changed dramatically. But today, I have a clearer understanding of my self-worth and credibility than I ever have, ever. Even though the products that we sell at What Works have actually gone down in price. Money is a metric, but that metric is not a measure of me. And that's what I've learned learning that the money my business makes is not my money. In just a minute, you'll hear a conversation between me and my husband and business partner, Sean, about how his relationship to money is changing now that he's a business owner. But first, a word from our WhatWorks partners. WhatWorks is brought to you by Mighty Networks. People want to connect, but our time, capacity, and bandwidth for yet another video call or Facebook group is extremely limited. People want support, and we also want to know we're talking to people who share our goals and values. People want to learn, and we want to collaborate while we do it. And of course, I know you want these things for your customers too. You want to connect them to each other, you want them to feel supported, and you want them to learn and grow. Mighty Networks makes it easy for you to help your customers do all of these things all in one place. When you start a Mighty Network, you make it easy for your customers to connect to each other, to support each other, and to learn from each other. Of course, your Mighty Network also makes it easy for you to connect with, support, and teach your customers too. Use your Mighty Network as a private social network to help them communicate and collaborate. Use your Mighty Network as a learning management system to help you deliver high-quality online courses. Use your Mighty Network as a support hub to help you answer questions and offer insight. And of course, use your Mighty Network as a payment processor so your customers can easily pay you for all the value you're creating. Get started with a Mighty Network free of charge by going to MightyNetworks.com. I also want to tell you a bit more about money and the new economy. An online gathering, the What Works Network, is hosting June 10th through 12th. This gathering is a celebration of how much we have each learned about money and our relationship to it as small business owners and how much there is still to learn. It's a celebration of how much things are changing. And while it might be scary, the opportunities we have to claim a new relationship to money and the chance we have to build stronger communities because of that new relationship. Now, my own relationship to money has changed drastically over the time I've been in business. In the beginning, I was working for latte money. Then I realized that I could bring in more in a month than I did in a year at my old job, and I had to get serious about where that money was going. I had to learn that the money the business earned was not my money. I had to learn how to invest in people, in their salaries and benefits. I had to learn how to take real risks and deal with the real fallout when they didn't work. I had to learn that more money isn't necessarily better and that running a business that works well can mean steady, sustainable revenue instead of exponential growth. Now, over the last 10 years, everything I thought I knew about money has changed. And over the last eight weeks, I've questioned even more about what I thought I had learned about money. That's why we're gathering smart, experienced small business owners like you for an extended conversation about money and the new economy. This gathering is designed to connect you to people who are thinking and acting on money differently. We're founders, creators, service providers, designers, artists, educators, and trainers. We operate businesses of one, as well as businesses that employ small teams. Many of us have been running our businesses for five years or more. When you join us for this event, you'll be learning from our speakers, of course, and you'll also be learning from other attendees. And you'll share your experiences and they'll learn from you too. Money and the New Economy is a live and interactive experience with an opportunity to learn, discuss, reflect, and challenge yourself. We kick things off on June 10th with a welcome reception so you can prepare for the rest of the experience and get to know others who are participating. Then on Thursday, June 11th, we'll meet together for the full day to talk pricing, money mindset, habits, business finances, and more. Then on Friday, June 12th, we'll come back together one more time to debrief in our closing reception. There are no travel expenses, no jet lag, and hopefully minimal childcare arrangements. To learn more about money in the new economy and grab your ticket to the gathering, go to explorewhatworks.com money. 
We do have need-based tickets available for those who have been impacted by our current economic crisis. Again, go to explorewhatworks.com slash money to get your ticket. All right. Like I said, we're starting this money conversation close to home. So I decided to put my husband and business partner, Sean, in the hot seat. We talk about money baggage, how his relationship to money has changed through different kinds of work, how much is really enough, and how he's subsidizing his vision for the future. So we're going to talk about money. How does that make you feel? Um, I'll be honest that I don't like talking about money. I don't like talking about money at all. Why don't you like talking about money? Makes me feel uncomfortable. I was thinking about this today and I came to the conclusion that the reason that I'm uncomfortable about money is that I grew up in a household where the discussion of money was considered to be rude. Even though my mother is an accountant, my grandfather started the business department at the, the local community school, community college. You still didn't talk about money. You didn't ask people what they made. You didn't ask people what they spent on their house. You didn't ask people what they spent on their car. Someone paid for dinner and there was no discussion of it. And you certainly didn't brag about how much money you made. So some guilt comes into it. So let's talk about the guilt piece. Why do you feel guilt talking about money? If you make money, you've done things to get that money. And there are people who are in need and are in want and you're not taking care of those people. And it's selfish, I think is the other thing. Making money is a selfish act. See, I, I, it makes me so uncomfortable. You can't see my face. Um, I'm blushing and it's interesting. Now I'm feeling really on the spot. <laughs> but yeah, the guilt is, is that this feeling that like other people are being left behind is that you're doing a thing and having financial success when other people aren't. You and I both grew up not well off. We knew want. And our mothers did a really good job and making us that not our problem, but we carried some baggage out of that. You know, regardless of how hard they worked at not making that our problem, we have it. And maybe some of that guilt comes from the struggles that our parents went through when they were when we were kids. So one of the reasons I really wanted to include you in this conversation is because you are so much closer to that baggage, those lingering feelings of guilt, those beliefs about talking about money being rude than I am. Because yes, you and I both came from uncannily similar financial uh, experiences as kids and have a lot of the same or have had a lot of the same um, thought processes and bag, like you said, baggage. Um, however, I've had longer to process those things as a business owner, not saying they're all resolved because they are not and not saying that I'm like some enlightened money thinker because I am not, but I've had longer to process it than you have. And so I thought this could be an interesting kind of comparison and contrast from my perspective, which is, you know, having processed these things over the last decade plus to you, who is a newer business owner, much, much newer business owner. And now that you're, you're not just like kind of processing the, the feelings and the thoughts and the baggage, but actually kind of getting into the muck of what does it mean to ask for the sale? What does it mean to put a price tag on something? What does it mean to look at your bank account um, and be very pleasantly surprised, you know? So um, I think there's there's probably a lot of places that we could go with just talking about the emotional piece and the, the money beliefs that we have, but I really want to do it through the lens of you becoming a business owner. So I often forget that Yellow House Media is not your first business, that you are actually an owner in a cooperative in Astoria. So I'd love to hear about what that cooperative was um, and what your relationship to money was like at that time. There was five of us and we all owned the business equally. We had mostly just get, gotten started we were doing wholesale baking, wholesale bread. And they have since, since I have left, they're still going, they're still thriving. They have a, not just a bakery, but they are also a cafe, coffee shop doing great. The reasons I got out, that's, a, that's an entirely different story. But the funny thing about that one is, is that I didn't invest any money into it. It was all sweat equity. And I certainly didn't make any money doing it either. Um, there were, as like with any business owner, I think when you're getting started, there's a certain stretch of time where you just don't make money. 
and you invest your resources, whatever that looks like. And then you hope at some point you can actually start making money. And so that, and, and I, I actually never did make money from that venture. They're really good people. And when they did actually start making money, I think they got a, they might've gotten a, some sort of a loan, but they did pay me. They paid me for my, they reimbursed my sweat equity. How did you afford to work there if you were not making money? Well, I lived pretty minimally, that's for sure. It was not the only collective that I was working at. I was working at a cooperative grocery store, so I was able to get, I was doing, I was working the produce stand, the produce department, so I was able to eat off all the seconds, the stuff that was discarded. And I worked at a movie theater for actual wages. So I was actually employed, but that was like super part-time. And I can't remember exactly what the details were, but I also was paying, I think, $200 in rent a month, maybe four, but it was not very much. Didn't have a car. You know, I just didn't have any expenses. So I mean, I don't know, man. I look back, I was living large. It was great. <laughs> I know. What have I done to you? <laughs> oh, I know. I was in an experimental noise band and I was just like, yeah, yeah, sweet. Oh, okay. So eventually you left um, the collective and you had a series of jobs in the service industry. Let's talk about the last one specifically. I mean, we don't have to talk about the job, but I'm curious about, again, sort of the evolution of your relationship to money. So when you were working as a server at a brewery, what kinds of stuff were you thinking about when it came to money? There was a big shift from when I started there and when I left. When I started there, I was just there for wages and tips. And by the time that I left, I'd started viewing myself more as an entrepreneur. I had read something somewhere that um, in the service industry, service industry specifically, but I think in any sort of waged position where you're not an owner, you can actually have a pretty significant mind shift in the way that you perceive your presence there. So if you think of yourself having a career and you are using the resources that other people have built to fulfill your career, you are an independent entrepreneur. And when I had, when I had that mental shift when working there, that was huge for me. I became way more invested in what was happening, way more invested in my, in my role, uh, and how I was involved in how the business was functioning and its success became way more of an important thing to me. And it showed, you know, I was a little less disgruntled and way more involved and allowed myself to actually be put into positions of management where I had really resisted it in the past. Okay, so fast forward again, uh, we moved from Oregon to Pennsylvania. And so obviously, you needed to leave that job. And you had a period of let's, let's call it seeking. <laughs> you were kind of seeking what the next phase of your life and work and career might be. How did your relationship to money shift during that period? Oh, it was great. You would think that somebody in that position would feel sort of weird that someone else was making the money and you weren't making the money. I'm not one of those people. <laughs> um, my life goal has always been to be like, oh, sweet, I don't have to make money anymore. Like that is completely a life goal still. Just so you know, if anyone knows any way I can do that, you let me know. The thing is, is that there are different ways to contribute to a relationship and contribute to a household without being the person who makes money. You know, and it's like with any team. I mean, there's going to be some sort of the person on the front, but then there's always going to be the, the team that supports. I kind of viewed myself in the position of supporting you and making things easier for you to run your business. Of course, I was, as you were saying, seeking uh, and more like kind of wandering. Like there were things that I thought that I wanted to do, and I was given the opportunity to really try to explore them and see if I wanted to do them. I have three drafts of three novels, but I learned a lot about myself in that it struck me while you were talking through that, though, that I think you are very aware of the value of household labor, oh, where, yeah. which is culturally something that we uh, are not very aware of. And it's something that is not built into our economic system. So I love that you brought up that you that you found value in how you were contributing to the household, even if it wasn't tied to a monetary result because that's something that so many families have to think about. So many couples have to think about uh, and very often don't, right? right. So I, I really value you bringing that up. 
Okay, so shift fast forwarding again, uh, we decide to start Yellow House Media. And uh, there's all sorts of kind of specific things that I could ask about and that I probably will ask about. But just from a big picture level, how has your relationship to money shifted again since becoming a business owner, not in a cooperative, not in a collective, but in a business that you own, or at least with me, outright? Well, one of the things I, I one of the reasons I think it's good to talk about the backgrounds with collectivism and my history with money is that a lot of that has not gone away. Like I have, I still have very conflicted feelings around money and we, we don't have to go too deep into this one, but the, the subject of enoughness, because the thing is, is that even though earlier when I, I was saying that I was, I was okay with just being support staff and just making sure that the house was running and you you had the support that you needed. The truth is is that somewhere inside you are, we come from this social socially we come from this society and I would say now it's nice to know that when when I spend money I don't have to check with you. <laughs> <laughs> and even if it's not even like actually checking in with you but just like emotionally and mentally the, that relationship has changed. My relationship right now with money is that I know now that a lot of my aspirations, a lot of the things that I want to do in this world were not limited isn't the right word, but I wasn't even really allowing myself to think of potentials because I didn't see myself as ever getting to a place where they were going to be accessible to me. And mm -hmm. so now I see more possibility and that possibility isn't really like, oh, now I'm suddenly going to get a house with a pool. <laughs> it's suddenly I I just I just see my future differently now, and I don't I don't feel like I have to think small anymore. I can start I can think a little bit bigger. And as far as the emotional element of it, I remember the one time. Another story entirely where up previously when I had more money than I'd ever had in the bank ever, it was like $10,000. And at that time in my life, I literally felt like I was set. Like this is, this is what I need. I am good for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I remember when that happened and there's this feeling of just this level of stress being kind of this pressure being lifted. Well, that money went away. And I would say in the last year, I've started to experience that feeling of a pressure release again. Because mm. we were saying earlier, when I was working hourly, when I was working for wages, I thought a lot about money. It was something that, you know, living from paycheck, paycheck to paycheck, it's stressful. And to have a little bit more financial security feels really good. Because, you know, we both have people in our lives who are going to become our dependence at some point. And it's really nice to know that we'll be able to take care of them. Yes, absolutely. It brings me to one of the kind of common um, money mindset, money relationship shifts that I see with small business owners and certainly experienced for myself as well, which is that when you are a wage worker, your financial stability is based on uh, showing up to the job, right? And as long as you keep showing up to the job, barring, you know, bad things happening uh, elsewhere, as long as you keep showing up to the job, there's a certain amount of financial stability that you feel a sense of confidence around. But it has to do with the continued ability to work and to maintain the thing that is providing your paycheck, right? When you become a business owner, that shifts so that your financial stability comes from this almost future orientation around what you can create and what you can lay the foundations for. And I find that to be a really fascinating shift um, because I think if the heart, the more you can lean into that, the more you can sort of see the possibility of reinvesting in your business, investing in yourself, investing in people in like, there's just, there's so much room 
for investment and growth on that side of things. And I think it's a really exciting place to be. The other thing that kind of goes along with this as well is that there's a shift from being, um, uh, you know, for work, being an employee, working for someone else where your relationship to the amount of money in your bank account is that it's always going down. Like you have a set amount that you are spending against. Whereas when you're a business owner, ideally there is no set amount, right? Which can also be, <laughs> can also be a bad thing if, if the, if, you know, business starts to dry up as so many people have experienced recently, but, um, there's always the possibility to create more. And it's, that is a huge mindset shift as well. Is that something that you've experienced at this point? Like it's happened to me several times over the last year where I'm like, okay, cool. I can stop here. Like, this is good. I'm good. You know, and growth for growth's sake isn't something that has ever really attracted to me. I, I want to clarify though, that I'm not talking about growth or even financial growth for growth's sake. I'm talking about potential. When you're working for someone else, there's very little unrealized potential at any given point, right? Like, sure, you could get promoted or you could ask for a raise, but that stuff tends to be very incremental and it's not in it's not as much in your control. Whereas when you're an entrepreneur, when you're a business owner, there all there is is potential right? So you can have a level of enoughness. You can feel really good about where you're at. And you can also know that you can add to that at any time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's free agency. It's actually something that um, attracts me about the current situation relative to the collectivism that we were talking about earlier is because those, the motivation to do my own thing with other people was motivated by that because I didn't want to always be limited by my employer. And that's kind of what you're talking about, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Is that with, if you're working wage labor, you reach a point where you just can't do any more and that's it. And imagine there are, you know, millions of people that are confronted with that situation. So to be able to, so you're saying that is an exciting place that even if you choose to say, okay, I'm good. You do know as an entrepreneur that you could take it to the next step if you chose to, and not even like necessarily take things into a financial growth kind of way, but you could like you could stop this business and start another one. You could yeah. take this business and uh, pivot. We can rotate, we can shift, and take things into a different direction. It's it's free agency, and that's very appealing. I also want to clarify, though, too, that that's a shift that so many business owners don't end up making, though. And that's why they end up in the position of being self-employed instead of being a business owner. And that self-employment can still feel like such limited potential. Where that where that potential isn't realized, where they don't feel secure in the potential for growth, and they feel like, well, you you know, you said when you're working for a wage, at some point you tap out on that. There's only so much work you can do, and if you've set up your business so that's the case as well, then you don't get the full benefit of having that financial potential yeah. for yourself. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about the future piece. I think this is an important piece of the overall money conversation, but I think it's also an important piece about how you are looking at money currently and what is kind of fueling, if you have money goals for the business, um, and they're not just my money goals for the business, uh, they're fueling the way you think about the financial outcomes that you're looking for. So um, at one point when we were kind of talking about the subject, you told me that the business that you're building today, the work that you're doing today is subsidizing a vision for the future, a vision that you have for your future. So how do you expect or how would you want your life or work to change over the next 10 years? So... I have aspirations that don't have anything to do with the work that I'm currently doing. And 
So I kind of see the work that I am doing as subsidizing those aspirations. Art, experimental music, psychogeographical surveys, <laughs> real money makers, you know. <laughs> I want to have a compound in Montana where I have a studio and I make gigantuan abstract art pieces and grow vegetables. This is maybe why you had a challenge with the seeking phase. Yeah, I know. So where do I see Yellow House going? Would like to see Yellow House get to a point where I actually work less with it. I would like, and it's not necessarily that I'm working less, but that I'm working smarter, right? That I have created a position for myself that I am doing the work that I want to do very well and efficiently. So I don't actually have to do it constantly. Because right now, as things stand every week, I like oh, start on Monday. And this is like, okay, what am I doing this week? Hold on tight. <laughs> and I'm looking forward to getting to a place where, you know, it takes half as much, half of my week, you know, and that will be another kind of like mindset shift for me as well, because to be able to do that will mean employing people and employing people is going to be another shift for me. But to the money part, bringing in the money is the thing that is going to allow that to happen. And I, I have so many different conflicting feelings, but basically what I've landed on is that one of the reasons that I can for myself inside of myself justify pursuing more income. So like I can, I can think of all the ways that I can justify growth in a business because it is fulfilling that vision of that business and its potential as a business. And then a byproduct of that is that you're making more money. But to put the making more money as the first step, first part of that goal, and then how are you going to achieve that? Well, I always ask myself, because that just doing that in of itself for me, is I, I'm not motivated towards that. But what am, what am I motivated towards? Um, I'm motivated towards giving really good work to really good people and setting them up. And because tell you what, man, I'm a good employer or will be. So this brings us back to the, the enoughness piece that you mentioned earlier, because I think your vision uh, and what you want from the future really shifts what is enough, right? Because I agree. I mean, where what we've already built with Yellow House is enough and more if what you want out of the next 10, 15, 20 years is to work full-time in podcast production, yeah. right? If you want to be a full-time podcast producer, um, and even with contracting out or employing out some bits and pieces of that, done. Great. We're there, right? But if what you really want to be doing 10 years from now is working 10 or 20 hours a week on some high-level management and business development or content development at, at the top of your podcast production agency, and then you've got to figure out what the money piece of that looks like now so that you have a growth plan that gets you there, right? And that doesn't mean you have to know what every step along the way is going to look like or exactly how the financials are going to play out year by year, even if you want to make some of those projections. But it does mean that it changes your goals and it changes how you see each new client that comes in and where they fall on the plan and how that helps you build out additional capacity because it will take financial growth and capacity growth to allow you to create a business, allow us to create a business that provides the kind of work that you're talking about or provides for an exit, right? Like the last time we were really talking about um, or back in September uh, on the episode that we did where we talked about scaling uh, this business and thinking about scale from the get-go, we also talked about exit strategy. And so if you want to exit a business, you have to look at what financially is going to make that attractive to a buyer. You know, if it's, if it's a, a just enough for one person or two people business, that's great. And it may actually attract the, a, a buyer, but you're not going to get for it what you could if you have built it out to a different level. 
And those are choices, right? I'm not saying one is necessarily better than the other, but they're choices that you have to make. And so for now, thinking about enoughness through the lens of, or what is enough in this business through the lens of where you want to be 5, 10, 15 years from now is an important piece about of asking the what is enough question. This is not something I think about a ton. And so it's not like I... It's interesting. It's really interesting to have these conversations because even even in this conversation, I feel like I've had some mental shifts on my perception of things. Listener, I hope you've had some money mindset shifts today too. You know, I think it's easy to get caught up in daydreaming about what more revenue might afford us. Peace of mind, a bigger retirement account, a nicer vacation, or a roomier house. And I think it's also pretty easy to focus on just having enough or finding a place that feels like enough. But what I'm really interested in right now is the vision that more revenue might help me to build. Can I build a business that employs people with excellent pay and benefits doing fulfilling work? Can I build a business that helps clients in new and interesting ways? Can I build a business that allows me to step away to do other important work? Now, as I mentioned at the very beginning, I'm learning to see money as a tool for potential and possibility. Money is a tool for helping me realize my vision. And that's a pretty powerful shift for me too. Next week, we'll check in with Marie Poulin and find out how a surprising discovery led her to upending her business model and finding a new easeful way to make money. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. Our editor is Marty Seafelt. Production assistance is by Kristen Runvik. Find over 280 more episodes of What Works and subscribe to our weekly newsletter on building a business that works better at explorewhatworks.com.